0: This will be the last time I'll be sharing with you guys from Revelation for a while. So please uh, bear with me today. I really, really want to finish this outline, and it brings us to a good stopping place so we can resume easily. So I'm going to try my best. Um, I don't want to cheat you out of the profound truth found in these passages, so I don't want to skip over something I don't wanna over summarize when there's things we could learn so let's just see what the Lord does this morning if you have your outline if you turn to the first page where it says Revelation 8 we ended last week with letter B the prayers of the Saints and it was in the midst of me sharing some New Testament exhortations on prayer and I'm gonna summarize a bit here these outlines are a tool and these scripture references and things I've put there are there for you to, to study on your own. So I don't want to spoon feed you if you can go and study. So I want to summarize a little bit here at the beginning so that we don't get caught up on a tangent and can proceed through this text. But I was talking in the context of this image John sees in Revelation 8. Okay, We have the eye of the storm, the, the seventh seal is opened. There's silence. For half an hour, and then we see these seven angels with the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal judgment is the silence, the eye of the storm, that period of 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 uh, intensity and anticipation, followed by the seven angels with seven trumpets. Okay, we've studied the six seal judgments that start at the beginning of the tribulation. The first seal was the coming of the Antichrist, the white horse. The second seal, the red horse, war. The third seal was the black horse, economic catastrophe. The pale horse, number four, widespread tragic death. The fifth seal, judgment from God, was the martyrs of all ages crying out for God's vengeance. And we see how That is judgments against the world because God's saints crying for vengeance guarantees coming judgment. The sixth seal is nuclear holocaust. At that time there's a transition between judgment by natural phenomena into the Lord Himself arising to shake the earth. I believe the sixth seal takes place around the midpoint of the tribulation sometime either before or after Antichrist's breaking of his treaty with Israel. And in the seventh seal is what we have here in chapter 8 it is the seven trumpet judgments okay chapter 7 is a parenthesis God's sealing of his 144,000 Jewish witnesses and the subsequent Gentile great awakening that takes place this is happening behind the scenes while all of this is occurring but here in chapter 8 John sees this vision of another angel standing before the throne of God at a golden altar of incense Offering up the prayers of the saints before the throne of God. And we talked about how that image was brought up uh, ties to the Old Testament altar of incense and what the purpose was and how the prayers of the saints, the prayers of Israel were tied to that incense rising before God in the temple and so forth and so on. And then I talked about this other angel, I believe, John, what he saw was Jesus Christ in his high priestly disposition, And we saw an image, or we see an image in chapter 8 of what it looks like in terms of Christ ever living to make intercession for His people as described in the book of Hebrews. And Christ is offering up these prayers before the throne. And the incense and the smoke that rises is like the prayers of God's people that rise before Him. And so I thought it behooved us because of the mention of the prayers of the saints and their relationship to Jesus Christ's high priestly work, and their relationship to the throne of God there in Revelation 8, it behooved us to see what the Bible has to say about prayer. We looked at some sobering thoughts from the Old Testament. God doesn't choose to hear all prayers. And even prayer can be an abomination to God if your ear is turned away from God's Word that He has already revealed. And then we looked at some New Testament exhortations concerning prayer. How we are called as saints of God to pray always. And in doing so, to be thankful to God and to express that. We are told to um, pray for one another in our sicknesses and in our faults. To pray for one another. To ask or sequester the prayer of our brethren in Christ by being transparent and being willing to show where we are weak. For, by praying for those who are persecuted around the world. Friends, there are Christians being persecuted now and Iraq. Terrible, terrible persecution. Are we praying for these? Let's do this. Let's do this. And then, I I got to Hebrews 13.3, but let's just take a moment and I'm going to summarize and you can go back and look at these passages if you want. James chapter 4 tells us, you know, it talks about unanswered prayer and it's like you ask and your prayers aren't answered but do you realize that you ask amiss and what you are asking of God is not for his glory but to consume it upon your own lust and pleasures if you ever wonder why your prayers are not being answered is it because what you're asking is for you and your lust and pleasures and not for God okay that verse in James 4 is worth meditating upon first John 5 14 tells us that if we ask anything according to His will, we can have confidence that He hears us. God answers prayer according to His will. The question is is not, will God give us what we ask? But is what we ask reflective of God's heart and His will? And that ought to be our desire as we pray. God, give us discernment. Even Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. We ought to ask God, Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to pray in accordance to your will. And when you don't answer our prayers, God answers all prayers. Sometimes it's no way. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes wait and be patient. But God hears us. And when we ask according to His will, He will answer and supply. And then there's two passages I encourage you to go study in your own time from Luke. Jesus, it involves parables that Jesus tells um, and it gives some interesting insight into prayer. Luke 11, 5 through 10, and Luke 18, 1 through 8. In Luke 11, the lesson is keep asking. Keep asking God. Importunity. Importunity is a word that means asking or requesting up to the point of annoyance or intrusion. Jesus taught a story in Luke chapter 11 of. Um, a man that has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, I need you to lend me some food because I have guests and I don't have enough to supply them. And you, know, you would think the friend would say, "You know, Don't bother me, it's late at night. I can't get up, you're disturbing me. And normally a person wouldn't get up and do that in the middle of the night. But then Jesus talks about how he ends up getting up and supplying his friend because of his friend's importunity. That means persistence and asking. He wouldn't leave him alone. Annoyance. Help me, help me, help me. And finally, the guy got up and did it in the middle of the night. And Jesus, in telling this story, says, I say unto you, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. So in the context of this story, Jesus implores those whom He is teaching to pray to ask God with importunity. Okay, it's okay to bug God in prayer. Okay, God can't be bugged. And the lesson here is don't be afraid to go to God with importunity, persistence. If we don't hear from Him immediately, go to Him and cry to Him. Jesus taught us to pray this way. So that parable of the importunate friend is something worthy of meditation on prayer. And then if you go to Luke 18 we see that this persistence in prayer is again taught by Christ and it's tied to God's vengeance. Okay? Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells another parable. Verses 1-8 through and it tells us why He spoke the parable. He spoke a parable unto them to this end or for this reason that men ought always to pray and not to faint. In other words, we should not tire of taking our request before God. And that's easy to do. We get frustrated and we wonder, is it even worth it? Is it even worth praying anymore for those who have separated themselves from us? Because they seem so bent upon their ways. Well, according to Jesus, it is worth it. We ought always to pray and not to faint. And then he talks about a judge in a city that had no fear of God. He didn't care what man thought. And a widow came to him and basically begged him, Judge, please avenge me of my adversary. And Jesus says, though the judge would not do it for a while because he didn't care, afterwards, he thought to himself, you know, I don't care about God, I don't regard man, but because this woman keeps bothering me, I'm going to do what she asks to basically shut her up. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming to me she weary me. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. So in this lesson, Jesus says in verse 7, Shall not God in the same manner avenge His own elect which cry day and night unto Him though He bear long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. So here we have Jesus teaching His disciples to to pray always and not to faint. And not to be afraid to pray for God's vengeance. This idea about how wrong and unloving it is to pray for God's vengeance flies right in the face of how Jesus teaches us to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray for vengeance against the wicked and the adversaries of God and His truth. To cry out to God day and night that He would avenge this world of the unrighteousness and sin. And we ought not to faint. Instead of getting angry and throwing our hands in the air and becoming distressed and discouraged at the chain of events we saw, see folding, unfolding around us, may we come to God continually and say, "God, avenge this society and the family that has been destroyed by the wicked sodomites that have come into our culture and destroyed the family and who are poisoning our minds. Avenge us of them." Lord, come and pour Your judgment out upon our wicked government that has turned this country away from God. God, will You avenge Your people Israel of these wicked, evil Muslims that want to destroy them who have perverted the character of God and perpetrated it across this world. God, will You avenge Your church of the false teachers and the wolves in sheep's clothing who have undermined sound doctrine and cast Your Word into the, into, into the realms of a misunderstanding and have cast it into the wastebasket. We should pray for God to avenge these things. We should pray for all to be made right. And that's a lesson in prayer from the mouth of Jesus Christ Himself. Instead of getting angry, the answer is not at the voting box. It's not at the ballot box. The answer is to go to God and to cry unto Him just like those martyred saints did in Revelation 6. Just like David did when he prayed for vengeance upon his enemies, he did not take matters into his own hands with King Saul. Twice he was given opportunity, but he took it to God. And God will avenge his saints. God will avenge his church. God will avenge Israel. God will avenge the tribulation saints. God will avenge righteousness. God will avenge this planet. In fact, the Bible says later as we're seeing these judgments poured out that God is going to destroy those that have destroyed his planet. Okay? Mother Nature's not going to do it through global warming. God will destroy those that have destroyed the earth. So those who have raped and pillaged the great redwood forest and raped and pillaged the farmland and raped and pillaged the rivers and all of these things with no care of stewardship, God will destroy them. And all the ones that cry out for Mother Earth and cry out on behalf of the environment will be destroyed as well because they worship the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. But men ought always to pray and not faint and be willing to go to God and pray for His vengeance. But leave it there. God says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It's not our place to seek vengeance. It's not our place to go and stop the abortion doctor by blowing up the clinic. That's wicked. That's wrong. But it is our place to cry unto God that He would stop the knives of these wicked men. That He would stop the mouths of these false teachers. That He would stop the destruction our presidents reaping upon this country and our our filthy, wicked Congress and these filthy, wicked, diabolical disgusting judges that sit on the benches all across the country, and these filthy, wicked, militarized police officers that act like a Nazi Gestapo unit in half of these towns around the country, just trampling on people's rights. These filthy, wicked mobs that use an incident to try to justify looting and just ransacking an entire community. We need to pray that God brings vengeance and leave it with Him, and He will. And Revelation is a testimony of how that's going to be unfold unfolded before us. Preach the gospel. Pray for God's vengeance. Declare the answer while there is time. And then be willing to let God do things in his time. The ultimate answer to any prayer. I don't care what kind of prayer it is. And we see this play it out in Revelation 8. We see it in the prayers of the saints of Revelation 6, the martyred saints. The ultimate answer really of any prayer, whether it's a prayer, for God to provide for the light bill, whether it's a prayer for the teachings of a false teacher to be stopped, or the prayer for a safe trip, really it's all tied to God's vengeance and righteousness. Because sin has ruined everything in this planet. Sin is responsible for schedules that don't work out. Sin is responsible for light bills that can't be paid. Sin is responsible for everything. and. Isn't our desire, saints of God, to see righteousness, to see the earth return to its state in the Garden of Eden, to see the consummation in the kingdom of God where there is no unrighteousness? Well, if that's the case, then every prayer really is tied to vengeance. And there is a guaranteed answer to every prayer. And that answer is ultimate vengeance. Ultimate vengeance and consummation of all things so that there no longer is unrighteousness. There is no longer heat and darkness and pain and sickness. There is no longer light bills that can't be paid, or debts from which you cannot come out. There is no longer interpersonal conflict. There is no longer false teachers. That's the ultimate answer to all prayers, and God's going to answer it. All prayers. In the fifth seal, the the martyrs are saying, Lord, how long until You avenge our blood upon the earth? And they were told to wait, rest for a little season, in my timing, in my timing. God answers prayers, may not be the way we want it answered, but we need to be patient. Patient as those that cry out to Him here in Luke 18. And faithful to keep asking, keep asking, keep asking and not to faint. Not because we can change God, we can't change God. But it teaches us patience. It helps us to discern the will of God and to accept it and to ultimately trust Him. And trusting God really is the heart of salvation. And friends, we ought to pray for God's vengeance because we ought to hate evil. If we don't hate evil, we're not followers of Christ. The Bible says in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If we hate evil with a righteous hatred, then we should pray for God's vengeance. Pray for God to stop it so that it can't destroy more souls so that it cannot destroy more innocent, unborn babies. Here, as these trumpets are blown, the prayers of the martyrs in chapter 6 are answered. The prayers of all righteous that cry unto God for vengeance, the elect that cry day and night are answered. Psalm 58, 10 and 11, The righteous shall rejoice in the judgment. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man may say, There is a God that judges in the earth. And there is a reward for the righteous. The priest turns avenger. Let's go to Revelation 8. Revelation 8. We see the priest and the prayers ascending up before God. Look at verse 5. And the angel, which I believe is Jesus Christ in His high priestly disposition, took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. The priest turns avenger, and the day that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the lost, and the avenger of the—I mean, and the uh, uh, the high priest of the church—turns avenger is a glorious day for the saints. It's the answer to our prayers. You know what I'm reminded of? I'm reminded of what the children of Israel hear when it says talks about shakings and voices and thunderings and lightnings. I'm reminded of what they saw atop Mount Sinai when God came down to Moses. The mountain shook with a fury, and it was clothed in thick darkness. Moses couldn't even look at God. He saw his backside. The glory was too great. This same God's going to shake the earth like he did Mount Sinai. And that shaking happens as these trumpets blow. Okay? So, the seven angels which had the seven trumpets began themselves to sound. Let's consider this use of trumpets for a moment. Trumpets were used in the Old Testament in the camp of Israel to call the people to worship, the silver trumpets would call them to their worship feast. They were used to call the people to war, to summon the people for battle. And they were used to call the people unto gladness and rejoicing and feastings. If you read Romans chapter, I mean Numbers chapter 10, you'll see all three uses of these trumpets there. I think it's interesting because these seven trumpets here in Revelation have that exact same threefold purpose. That exact same threefold purpose. They are a call to the world to worship God, because the day of His vengeance is come. We see this in Revelation chapter 14. And this is connected to chapter 8. In verse 6 it says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. At the end of chapter 8, John sees an angel fly in the midst of heaven, not an eagle. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then in chapter 14, verse 6, he sees another angel fly in the midst of heaven. Having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. These trumpet judgments are a call. Worship God. This is your last chance. Because He's coming to judge. These trumpet judgments are also a call to war, they're a call to war. Look what happens in chapter 8 as we go on to verse 7 and beyond. God declares war on the human race. Massive strike and invasion. An invasion of the demonic, we'll see. An invasion of God's wrath. It's a call to war. And these seven trumpets are also a call to gladness. Gladness for God's people. The church in heaven the sealed of Israel on earth, the tribulation saints on earth, a call to gladness for God's people in the vein of Psalm 58. The righteous will rejoice in the judgment. In the vein of the prayers of the martyrs in chapter 6 of Revelation. Lord, avenge us. These seven trumpet judgments are calls to worship, to war, and to gladness. Worship To the wicked world, war to the wicked world, gladness to God's people. All right, let's start with verse 7. The trumpet judgments. Remember, this is all the seventh seal. The seventh seal is one big smack in your face judgment that includes the seven trumpets and the seven vials of wrath. Let's look at the first trumpet. Before we do so, I want you to remember that God poured out His judgment at another time in history, very similar to what we're going to see here. It was the plagues of Egypt, okay? Those plagues were not only attacks against Pharaoh and his people for refusing to let Israel go, but they were direct attacks against Egypt's gods so that God would demonstrate that He was superior, okay? I believe these judgments that we're going to see, particularly these first four judgments in Revelation 8, just like the ten plagues, I believe that they are an attack demonstrating God's rule and power over what I think is a modern day fourfold pantheon of gods that mankind worships. We have a fourfold pantheon of gods that we as human beings worship and pay allegiance to in this modern day earth. And you see it all over the world. I don't care what religion you claim to follow or what God you claim to follow. That fourfold pantheon of gods includes Mother Nature, military might, the city, all the city, it's heaven on earth, let's move to the city, city life, and the personal schedule. My plans, my schedule, what I'm going to do. That's our fourfold pantheon of gods in modern day 21st century. Men don't worship Horus and Isis and all of these gods of Egypt, but they worship these man-centered elements of life and these first four trumpet judgments God attacks, throws an attack right to the heart of this pantheon. God does things. He demonstrates. It's not a random judgment. God is attacking what we have made gods in our lives. First trumpet, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And a third part of the trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. So we have hail and fire mingled with blood. That's not natural. It's not natural for hail to be mingled with fire unless it's paired with a volcanic eruption. And it's certainly not natural for blood to be mingled in hell. This is divine, a divine plague. What is the target of this trumpet judgment? A third of the earth's foliage, the trees, and all the green grass. Think about the casualties of such a judgment. Earth's food and oxygen supply will be greatly affected, greatly affected. When I read about this judgment, I think about the seventh plague against the people of Egypt, the plague of hail. You could find this in Exodus chapter 9. And we need to see what, let's look at what the effects of that plague were on the people of Egypt. And then imagine this multiplied upon the entire planet. Exodus chapter 9, I'm not going to read everything, it kind of starts with verse 13 and goes all the way up through verses uh, verse 35, and um, let's see where we're at here. So God tells Moses, Pharaoh won't uh, listen, and so um, yet another plague comes, Uh Verses 13, The Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this, for I will at this time send all my plagues upon your heart and upon your servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause I have raised thee up for to show thee in thee my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And yet you exalt yourself, God says. Verse 18, Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. And so then it goes on to talk about this. God gives warning before He does it. Some people listen and bring, bring their animals and things inside for protection. And then it says in verse 22, "...and the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt." So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So that wasn't natural either. There's no volcanoes in Egypt. This was fire mingled with hail. It's a supernatural judgment. Very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And of course, the people in the land of Goshen, the, the Israelites, were spared of this judgment. So we saw a mighty hail. God said it's never been seen before. Hail. Fire mingled with the hail. This is just a taste. Egypt was bad, but what's coming worse... This isn't just a grievous hail. It's hail mingled with fire and blood. Much like the seventh plague. In this plague upon Egypt, God was targeting primary deities in the worship of the Egyptians. Nut was the sky goddess. Isis and Seth were were agricultural deities that were struck down by this hail. There was Shu, the god of the atmosphere, God showed His power over all of these when He sent hail. We fast forward to the time of tribulation. We have hail mingled with fire and blood. This presence of blood in this judgment, I believe, is the spirit of true vengeance. Because what you have is these martyrs crying out to God to avenge their blood. What did God say to Cain about Abel's blood? The blood of your brother Abel cries unto me from the ground. God takes that blood that cries unto him and he mingles it with this hail he dumps upon the earth. It's the spirit of true vengeance for the blood that has been shed of God's righteous people by the wicked who are targeted here. The interesting thing about this first trumpet is it's, Not the last hail judgment, and it's not the worst. In Moses' day, what was seen in Egypt was the worst that had ever been seen. None of this is said here because this isn't the last great hail from God, and it's not the worst. There's more to come later. If you go to chapter 11, verse 19, you see that the last trumpet also involves hail, it's the opening of the seven vials which is the seventh trumpet. And it talks about, in verse 19 of chapter 11, "...and the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there were seen in His temple the ark of His testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail." So hail not only opens the seven trumpets, it closes it. And then in chapter 16, there's a great hail that is the seventh vial. The last vial judgment. Chapter 16, verse 21 And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great." So this first trumpet is severe, but it's a prelude to greater hail judgment. The weight of a talent, that's like huge hailstones. I've been in Minnesota where somebody pulled a bowl of hail out of their refrigerator that had re- or freezer that had recently fallen and they wanted to save it. And it was the size of baseballs. I've seen it with my own eyes. Man, can you imagine getting hit with that? Okay? I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head what a talent weighs. Um, 100 pounds. 100 pound hail! And what do men do? They blaspheme God. They don't repent. And they know it's from God. So this is not the last or the worst hail. Hail opens and closes the seven trumpets and it opens and closes the seven vials. It's interesting the use of hail throughout the Scriptures and what it means and what it is to God. In Psalm forty-eight let's see what it says here. Uh, uh, Daniel, Psalm 148.8 Matthew, Job 38, 22 and 23 Okay, Jason, Isaiah 28, verses 20, verse 22. Let's see about hail elsewhere in the Scriptures. Let me make sure, let's see, Isaiah 28. Okay, I'm sorry, Jason, uh, verse 17 of Isaiah 28. Psalm 148.8. Fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling His word. Fire and hail, stormy vapor, I mean, fire and hail, vapor and stormy winds fulfilling His word. These things we call natural disasters in our modern day society is God fulfilling His word. You see, they used to call it acts of God. Because some of the insurance companies still do call it that. It's kind of interesting. But it's not Mother Nature. It's Father God, my friends. Mother Nature's an idol. Nature itself knows that it's not the Mother. Because it groans to God the Father to be redeemed from wicked men and the curse of sin. It's not Mother Nature. It's Father God. And so when somebody that looks like a crazy street preacher stands on a street corner in New Orleans after Katrina and urges man to repent because of God's judgment, the world may mock Preachers and sophisticated Christians may mock, but that person has a greater understanding of God and His judgment than the educated seminarian. Because the Bible says here in Psalms that these things fulfill God's Word. Acts of God, not Mother Nature, Father God. There's no such thing as a natural disaster. All is an act of God, for He's sovereign and He governs His creation. Job 38, 22 and 23 God says He stores up snow and hail, saving it for the day of judgment. So the hail that's going to fall during this tribulation has been stored up. And Job is being confronted by God. You know, you are finite. Have you even considered these mighty things? Were you there when I created the earth? You know where the wild asses go when they when they um, give birth and run into the mountains. It's a very rare thing to see a herd of wild ass over in northern India. In Ladakh where we're going, and I had the privilege of seeing some from a distance. They're very strange looking creatures. It's a rare thing. Or the snow leopard as well. And God's confronting Job with these great truths that he can't possibly understand. And he said, you even consider the treasure of ale that I've reserved against the day of judgment. What we're reading about here in Revelation is that day of judgment. And then Jason, Isaiah 28 verse 17 Hail has a cleansing effect. It sweeps away wickedness. It sweeps away the refuge of lies. This passage here in Isaiah is in the context of um, prophecy against Israel that had a dual fulfillment. It was fulfilled on the near horizon with Sennacherib's invasion, and it's fulfilled on the far horizon with what we're talking about here. And the hail will sweep away the lies. It will sweep away the lies that the people of Israel have believed concerning their Messiah. It will sweep away the lies that people have put their faith in concerning the Mother Nature and all these foolish things. It's got a cleansing effect. As I said, this first trumpet is a direct attack against Mother Nature. The goddess worshipped and exalted in this society from the first grade science textbook to the National Park wayside. The goddess that is, whose existence supposedly is used to justify all sorts of sins and crimes against God. This outpouring of hail, mingled with fire and blood is not something Mother Nature can do. Because it's not Mother Nature. It's Father God. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Remember that key passage in Revelation 4.11, one of the key passages of the entire book? In that throne room in heaven, where the church is in heaven after the rapture, says this, I'll read it again, Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. not Mother Nature. It's Father God, there's another passage in Nehemiah I think it's worth reading in the context of atheism and environmentalism in which we live. Nehemiah 9.6 Thou, even Thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, that's the universe, then the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and Thou preservest them all. Not Mother Nature. God preserves them, and the host of heaven worships thee. You see, we worship the host of heaven in our societies, but that host we worship worships God. This is an attack against Mother Nature, a goddess, and man-made, the modern day man-made pantheon of idols. Let's look at the second trumpet. Revelation chapter 8. The second trumpet, verses 8 and 9. And the second angel sounded. And the language here is showing, you know, if the sixth seal is around the midpoint of the tribulation, realize there's only three and a half years left until Christ's coming in Armageddon. These things happen quickly. They're not drawn out over a long period of time. It's boom, 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 boom. One right after another. If you were there at the martial arts promotion yesterday, one of the last things we did is I put each of these students testing that for their blue belt in the middle of a grouping and there were three of us black belts. They were to close their eyes and we were just to go right at them with anything. One right after another. Boom, 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 boom. Attack, attack, attack. And they had to defend themselves. This is what's happening here. It happens and it happens quickly. Okay? One right after another. Just a pummeling of God's judgment. The second angel sounded as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and the, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and have life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. First trumpet, we had hail and fire mingled with blood. Here we have volcanic cataclysm, the likes of which has never been seen. The target is a third of the earth's salt water supply, a third of the sea creatures die. The salt waters are affected. And a third of the earth's navies. A navy is a key component of modern day military might. And when you destroy a ship's, a country's navy, you destroy its mobility. When I read about this, I think of the first Egyptian plague. What was the first thing God did to the Egyptians to show that He was God? Anybody Remember? The Nile River was turned to blood. Now, if you understand ancient Egyptian civilization, that Nile River was of utmost importance to their survival. In fact, all the major cities were built along the Nile and in that floodplain. And the overflowing of the Nile's banks was key to the survival of the people and key to the food supply. That's why the Egyptians looked at the Nile as a god itself. They worshipped Hapi, the spirit of the Nile. They worshiped Osiris and taught that the Nile was his bloodstream. What did God do? He went right at the heart of Egyptian religion. And He attacked the bloodstream of one of the Egyptian gods by turning the Nile itself into blood. And the river stank. And it literally affected not only the fish in the river, the food supply there, but the crops and the people's ability to fertilize and water their land. I believe... Again, here with this second trumpet, we have the spirit of true vengeance because a third part of the sea becomes blood. Again, this is tied to the martyrs crying out that God would avenge their blood, just like Abel's blood cried from the ground. This is the spirit of true vengeance. And this second trumpet, to me, is a direct attack against another God in modern day society military might. You know, we just think everything's A-OK, and we just think we're safe and secure here because we've got America's got the best military in the world. I don't know about that anymore. It's kind of shameful that we live in a day and time when a Chinese jet can fly right up on an American uh, uh, um, surveillance military plane enough to scare the pilot, and there's no retaliation. Uh, amazing to me. It's amazing that... Um, Things could happen without our knowledge and all that, but yet we still think, oh, we got this great military, there's nothing to worry about. A military force can be overthrown in a moment, and it can have nothing to do with the army of of the enemy. This is an attack against the God of forces. Who is it that worships the God of forces in this day when this happens? Who is it that leads the world to worship the God of forces? Um, let's see here. Bob, we turn to Daniel 11: 37 and 38. Daddy, Isaiah 40: 15 through 18. Eric, Psalm 9:17. There's no question that military might, might is right, governs our thought processes today. It is a God we worship. And God's going to show his superiority in this judgment. All right, Daniel 11:37 and 38. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of horses. And a God whom his father do not shall be honored with gold and silver and with precious stones and pheasant things. Those verses are talking about Antichrist in Daniel 11. He will not regard the God of his fathers. He will worship himself as God and he will regard the God of forces. Antichrist relies on military might. And obviously that military might will involve navies. And it's very possible that this this trumpet judgment overthrows Antichrist's navy in a moment. When we think of the great military powers of this earth, United States, Russia, China. Nuclear superpowers. Nuclear powers like India and Pakistan and North Korea. When we think of those, sometimes we tremble and think, man, that's, they're so powerful. Do you think God trembles before the nuclear arsenal of the United States? Isaiah 40, 15-18. Look what God says even about the most powerful military nations. Behold, Behold, the nations are as a drop of the bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness? Will you compare unto him? Even the mightiest of nations in a day in Isaiah's day, he lived in a day of mighty nations, the, the nation of Assyria, Babylon. The reference to the Isles, much later in history, Rome, the great Roman Empire, is described as the Isles. That's less than nothing to God. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. Even the most powerful nation, militarily speaking, is just a drop in the bucket to God. Less than, it's not even worth burning. God's not intimidated by these things. And He shows with this second trumpet that He can overthrow a navy like that. He's actually shown that in history before. There was a time in history when one of the world's greatest navies was overthrown in a way that changed the course of history. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Psalm 917. The wicked... The wicked shall return to Sheol, or the wicked shall be turned into hell. That's what that means. And all the nations that forget God. All the nations. Even the nuclear superpowers. It's kind of interesting the way you see things unfold today. I saw an op-ed piece recently in which the comment was actually everything's so backwards today that it's really Russia and President Putin that is the West's, the West's greatest ally in terms of the threat of Islam. It's not Britain and France and all of these others who have capitulated. It's kind of funny how the Cold War has changed sides. It's almost like Russia's the good guys willing to stand up against this wickedness and we're the wicked ones. It's kind of reversed. But God can do all that for His purposes to shake up the world. Now in terms of this, we see here that there's a great mountain burning with fire cast into the sea. This, I see an image of a great volcanic cataclysm. And we know that when volcanoes explode and they're horrific explosions, it affects the environment. It affects the water, particularly when ash is dumped everywhere. Down where Ricky and worked and where Dylan and Sherry lived, there was a volcanic explosion on the border of Argentina and Chile. And it was some distance away. But Dylan showed me a picture up at the pass we crossed where there was just, it, everything was covered in this gray ash. And like cars were covered in that stuff in Bariloche, which was miles away from the epicenter of the destruction. But when we think of this great mountain that would actually affect a third of the world's saltwater supply and destroy a third of the world's navies, consider the Pacific Ring of Fire. If you look at the earth's topography, there's a large 25,000 mile horseshoe shaped uh, area of land that includes the west coast of both North and South America, it includes Russia, parts of Russia, Japan, the Asian islands, Indonesia, New Zealand, and Antarctica. This Pacific Rim, this region that goes all the way around the Pacific Ocean of volcanic, of land uh, uh, characterized by volcanic activity is the home to 452 volcanoes, 75% of the world's volcanoes, and 90% of the world's earthquakes you know is this great mountain here really the Pacific ocean is a basin it's almost like the caldera of a volcano in that land all around the Pacific Rim is the crater so really the Pacific Ocean itself is the water in the basin of a great mountain now what if that entire basin exploded that all that, think of all that salt water supply that would be affected think about currently the great naval fleets that are based in the Pacific Ocean the United States Russia, China, Japan. This could easily happen. Currently, I was reading today that there's a volcano in Iceland. There's been been eruptions and they're anticipating a terrible explosion and they've already created a no-fly zone. And they're already expecting that it could vastly affect transatlantic European flights. In fact, what I was reading made me to think we may not be heading out of here next week anyway. So there's potential here. The last time something like that happened, it canceled tons of flights because no one could fly anywhere near. The visibility was obscured. When that ash falls, it, it, it affects the land, it affects the water. That's what we see here. Volcanic cataclysm on a level far greater than anything modern-day society has ever seen. And I very well believe it could be connected to this Pacific ring of fire. Now. I want you to think about something. It says a third part of the ships were destroyed. This is an attack against man's military might. I believe it's an attack against naval fleets that will be key to mobility. You see, without a navy, the United States couldn't send troops other places because we're separated from the rest of the world by two great big oceans. That's why it's very unlikely that a foreign power would ever really be able to invade us large scale as you've seen in Europe and the world wars and things and that's been the natural protection the United States has always had. But without navies there's no mobility. You know, European armies can invade European countries because they're landlocked and they don't need an ocean, but we're separated. Okay. I I I want to go back to a historical event that took place in 1588. It was called the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And it's just a an example of how God can overthrow a mighty navy. There was a Catholic King Philip II of Spain who basically sent a huge armada of ships, 136 cannon-laden galleons, and it escorted an army, a Catholic army of 30,000 troops. He sent this armada to invade Protestant England. This was in the context of of Queen Elizabeth. And King James I would come later. So it was in the context of God raising up England to be a voice for not only the Bible translated into the English language, but to be the source of the missionary movement, to send colonists to America to establish this nation. So it was in the context of things that would affect history even today. We know that one of the historical events that took place in 1611, the translation and publication of a standard authorized English Bible would affect the entire world in terms of the gospel going forth. So this armada was sent to invade England and to overthrow the Protestant government and return England to the Pope and to destroy any efforts at translating the Bible into English on the British Isles. So this army with this great navy was sent to England to stop the reformation and revival in that nation. The Pope backed it and encouraged it by telling the soldiers and the the sailors that he would say special prayers to grant them forgiveness of sins if they would go give their lives to conquer England for the Catholic Church. Wicked. Catholics aren't Christians, by the way. This kind of stuff proves it. The English had a makeshift pirate navy, basically, of about 30 ships and a few harbor tugs. And their a defunct commander was Sir Francis Drake, who was basically a pirate. They had nothing with which to match these galleons that were headed their way. When the Spanish fleet arrived off the English coast in the English Channel, the best that this small navy of ships could do was harass the fleet. Harass it. But then, terrible storms arose in the North Atlantic and these storms wrecked most of this world's most powerful naval fleet off the coast of England, Scotland, and Ireland. These storms wrecked the armada in such a way that here's what the English said, God blew and they were scattered. King Philip of Spain had this to say, I sent my ships to fight men I didn't send them to fight wind waves and God. The Spanish Armada was wrecked. Spain, which was the foremost military and naval power at that time, the forerunner in terms of the world's exploration in that day, was reduced immediately to a fifth-rate world power and it never ever recovered. Spain is an inconsequential nation today. Never recovered from that. We're talking 500 years ago. Something that happened is still felt today. Spain is a fifth-rate nation and it's never recovered. It had the mightiest navy in the world. It led the way in exploration and discovering new lands. King Columbus was sent out with the backing of the monarch of Spain. What happened also, the English navy became dominant as a result. The sea lanes were opened so that explorers and, and pilgrims and Puritans could flee persecution and travel freely across the Atlantic. And make their home here on these shores. America was colonized. And what was brought here? Religious freedom. What was raised up? A nation that would send missionaries into all the globe. What happened a few years later? The Bible was, was authorized and a standard English translation was, was, was given to the world. And that Bible was taken to these shores. That Bible has been preserved and translated into multitudes of tongues. So that many have heard the gospel in their language. This first Catholic attempt to destroy it was overthrown in a moment by the God of creation who sent storms to wreck an entire fleet. In 1605, there was a second attempt to ransack this Bible translation project. It was called the Gunpowder Plot, where they had Catholic Jesuits had conspired to literally blow up Parliament in England and, and to keep this project of Bible translation, the King James Bible, from taking place. And this plot was foiled by an anonymous letter that someone received talking about the existence of this plot. And that letter was taken to the authorities and it was um, overthrown. That plot was discovered and the Jesuit attempt to sabotage the translation of the King James Bible was foiled. Okay? When I think about the Spanish Armada, it's a pretty amazing story. I believe the second trumpet judgment is something along these lines in terms of the world's navies, in terms of Antichrist, God of forces. God shows His power and His ability and His superiority over a 21st century man-made God. Verse 10, the third trumpet. We've had hail mixed with fire and blood. We've had volcanic cataclysm that affects the salt water and the earth's navies. Verse 10, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. With the second trumpet, we have fire from below, from the depths of the earth the third trumpet we have fire from above fire from above God's judgment. The target of this trumpet judgment is a third of the earth's fresh water supply. The earth has salt water and it has fresh water. This judgment targets the earth's fresh water and obviously the casualties are earth's population and I believe this is meteoric cataclysm I believe this involves some sort of a meteor or a comet that crashes into the Earth's atmosphere, and as a result of that, maybe perhaps it burns up in the Earth's atmosphere, and the dust and the residue that falls is what poisons the water. This is connected with a meteorite or a comet, the impact of which blasts some sort of poisonous cosmic dust into the atmosphere, and it falls and it affects the fresh water and the groundwater. Now. This type of thing has happened in man's history because of man's foolishness. Chernobyl, the explosion of the nuclear reactor in Russia, or the Ukraine is an example of how water supply, not only the fresh water but the groundwater can be affected. The over-extreme, crazy, rapid urbanization of the Kathmandu Valley in Nepal is an example. You can have a well in your your backyard, but you would be a fool to drink out of a well in Kathmandu. The arsenic and nitrate levels in that groundwater is off the charts. Because so many people have moved into that basin. The valley can't handle it. They dump their trash in the river. The sewage goes straight into the ground. The groundwater is poisoned. And when you drink it, you get sick. And who knows what the long-term effects are, because this rapid urbanization is not that old. In fact, back in the 19, as recently as the 1980s, you could swim in the Bagmati River. I remember being in Kathmandu in 99, and Ring Road was where I went and took my motorcycle for a ride if I wanted some peace and quiet. That was only, that's a little more than 10 years ago. I mean, that's not even 20 years ago. And the Bagmati is so filthy. Some of you all are going to see it. You're going to see the Buri Ganga if you're coming to Bangladesh. But that shows what man can do to the world's fresh water supplies. Imagine what God can do. Wormwood. Wormwood in the scriptures is associated with bitterness. Now, wormwood in small doses can be beneficial to the health. In fact, I take a few drops of wormwood from a fresh green, from fresh green black walnut. So if you guys want to pass this around, you can kind of smell Wormwood, and you can smell the bitterness. And if you want to put a drop on your finger and just put it on your tongue, what will come to mind is bitterness. So I thought y'all might find that interesting. At least smell that. That's wormwood. But wormwood is in the Scriptures. In Deuteronomy 29, God talks about wormwood as representing a person or a family who turns away from the Lord. It's a root of wormwood in the nation of Israel. Those in the church that lead the saints of God away from His Word are like a root of wormwood. There are many pastors in this country that are wormwood, bitter, and ought to be cut down. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 4. Wormwood is the bitter end of a whorish woman. If you think you can go to the prostitute or commit adultery on your wife and get away with it, your end is wormwood. God speaks of judgment against idolatrous Israel in Jeremiah 9 as the judgment of Gaul and Wormwood. Bitterness. Jeremiah 23, the judgment of Gaul and Wormwood is against Israel's false prophets. Bitterness. This judgment from God is bitter upon the earth. Bitter upon those who have embittered God. Amos 5.7 has something to say about Wormwood that's Worth mentioning. Hosea, Joel, Amos, chapter 5, verse 7. You, God is speaking judgment. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and you shall live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Bethel's where they had one of those golden calves that Jeremiah, uh, Jeroboam set up. You who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. Seek Him that maketh the seven stars in Orion. How in the world did Amos the prophet know that the Pleiades had seven stars? You can't see the seventh one with the naked eye. You need a telescope. God warns those who turn judgment to wormwood, who pervert judgment. So judgment, wormwood is used in the context or as a symbol of perverting judgment. Listen, man perverts judgment and righteousness. God Turning these to wormwood. We have in our society perverted God's judgment and righteousness and we have turned these things to wormwood. Therefore, God is going to judge with the bitterness of wormwood. This is a result of our perverting of judgment that that this great lamp falls from heaven and poisons our fresh water supply. Now, interesting. I believe this... We think about the fresh waters being poisoned, and men drink these waters and they're made bitter. And we see the casualty as being men and the waters. But I think there's a greater casualty here. I believe this third trumpet is a direct attack against the third member of man's modern-day pantheon, and that is the city. The city life. In today's 21st century, the city is God. City life is viewed as heaven. When you look at the rapid urbanization that's taken place in the third world in the last 25 years, it's staggering. People think if I can just get to the city, I can have money, I can have a new life, and they're leaving the villages in mass. And what's happening in places like Nepal is all these people are pouring into Kathmandu, they're leaving the villages, and what's happening? The fields aren't being farmed. And they're crowding into this valley that can't house them. And the entire economy is affected. Because they're governed by this delusion that the city will bring them peace. Most immigrants that come to this country, where do they go? They flock to the cities. There's parts of New York now that are like little Bangladesh. The city is viewed as God. The city is viewed as the place where we can find answers to our problems. And we can make money. God demonstrates here through this judgment that He is God over the city. Let's go back to Genesis 4. Let's look at what the, what's the first thing Cain did after he was turned out from the presence of the Lord from murdering his brother Abel. It says in verse 16 of chapter 4, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he, Cain, what did he first do? He builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. The city and all the wickedness therein began with Cain, that wicked one. And the city life is fraught with sin. Turn to Revelation 16, 19. This is one of the most profound statements of judgment that I have seen anywhere in Scripture. This is one of the Scripture's most sobering statements of judgment. This is the seventh vial. Listen to this. Revelation 16, 19. Seventh vial judgment. There at the end. And the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. So God sends an earthquake and what happens? The cities of the nations. The cities of this world. All the cities fall in a moment. If you think... Life is about the city. Do you not realize that every one of those skylines in a moment is going to fall at the end of time? What an incredible judgment that the cities of this world on all continents will fall in a moment. And the only reason Jerusalem does not is because it's the city of the great kingdom. And He's coming shortly thereafter to raise it up. Here... How in the world is an attack against the rivers and the fresh water supply of this earth an attack against man-made cities? You're probably thinking, what is he thinking about? It says that this star falls on the waters, and the waters are bitter. What does that have to do with city life? Do you realize that the existence of a city is completely dependent upon a fresh water supply? If you look at the ancient world, where were cities built? Were Egyptian cities built in the middle of the the desert? No, where were they all found? Right along the Nile River. Where was Babylon built? Babylon was built over the Euphrates River. And when the Persian army stopped and rerouted the Euphrates, the mighty city of Babylon fell. Rome was built on the Tiber River. Think about modern day, the modern day United States. Think about west coast cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. Their fresh water supply is completely dependent upon snow melt in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Las Vegas. Without Lake Mead, Las Vegas is in trouble. Cities along the Mississippi River. Chicago on the banks of Lake Michigan. Without these fresh water supplies, there would be no cities. That's why you don't have cities in places where there's not rivers or lakes or at least sources of fresh water. And friends the city life is a fragile existence. Most of San Francisco's water supply comes from a reservoir in Sierra near Yosemite called the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. All it would take to completely ransack San Francisco and the Bay Area's fresh water supply would be one winter without snow in the Sierra Nevadas. That's all it would take. In fact, Sierra Nevada snow accounts for a third of California's water supply. Currently, right now, there have been three straight years of historically low snowfall in the Sierra Nevada. Hetch Hetchy Reservoir normally fills and empties three times in a year. This year, it's unlikely to fill even once. This is an article I read just the other day there are already battles in California between farmers and the city of San Francisco over who has the water rights fragile fragile finite so when the fresh water supply is affected the city is affected and the God of the man-made city is attacked right in the heart that's what fresh water supply has to, has to do with the city things are very fragile in California What if this great mountain that falls into the sea is a big chunk of the the state of California like they've been predicting for so long and these cities are all of a sudden cut off from their fresh water supply? Who knows? These things could easily happen. They're not beyond the realm of possibility by any means. Fragile, fragile, finite. When will we wake up? And then finally, bear with me here. Bear with me. Let's go to the fourth trumpet judgment. Verse 12. Sorry, I've got to turn back here. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. We've had hail and fire mingled with blood. We've had volcanic cataclysm, meteoric cataclysm. Now we've got calendar cataclysm. Do you realize how much of our life is tied to calendars? And when that is train wrecked, not only is our schedule messed up, but our biological clocks are messed up. If you want to see the effects of a calendar and the seasons and the light and the darkness and all of that has on your body, go spend a couple of days in a cave with no watch. Or no, go spend a few hours in a cave with no watch and then come outside and look at your watch. You'll wonder, what? I thought I was in there for an hour. I've been in here for seven or eight hours. That actually happened to me one time. Our body is dependent upon the seasons and the daylight and the night. Our biological clocks. Everything we do. And if this is train wrecked, man's schedules are train wrecked. The target here, I believe, is Earth's calendar. The casualties are the seasons, the weather patterns, the food supply, our biological clocks, and our man-made schedules. I think of the Egyptian plague, the ninth Egyptian plague, when God sent darkness to the land of Egypt. Real quickly, Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Verse 21, The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be felt. Have you ever seen darkness that may be felt? Go in a cave, you can feel it. Trust me, turn the lights out. And then it says that Moses stretched out his hands, God sent darkness, there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. In that day, this plague of darkness was a direct attack against some of Egypt's primary gods. Ray and amun Ray, Horus, the sun gods that they worshipped. Thoth, the moon god. God showed that these gods had no power. He sent darkness for three days. And Ray, amun Ray, Horus, Thoth, they couldn't do anything about it. This fourth trumpet judgment affects the sun, the moon, and the starlight. And it shows, or it proves that the sixth seal, you remember the sixth seal? Nuclear holocaust is saying that the the sun became black like sackcloth and the moon like blood. This fourth trumpet proves that the effects of that sixth seal were only temporary. So that's why I believe it's some sort of nuclear holocaust. If the sun had been permanently turned to sackcloth and the moon to blood, then this judgment would make no sense because the light would already be affected. The sixth seal was temporary, and now we have another attack against earth's heavenly bodies. Okay? the effects of the sixth seal by God's grace were only temporary. But this is a direct attack against the fourth member of man's 21st century modern day pantheon, the personal schedule. And it's also an attack against one who set himself up as God in this day. This is an attack. It's God's answer first to Antichrist and his bold actions. If we turn to Daniel chapter 7... Antichrist does something very bold when he comes to power, something in the lines of what Caesar did, okay, something along the lines of what Pope Gregory did when they established their calendars, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he will think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time, that's a year. And times, that's two years, so one and two is three. And the dividing of time, that's half a year, three and a half years. Antichrist will change times and laws, and the power to do so will be given into his hand. Antichrist will change the calendar. And he'll set it up according to his schedule. Okay. In fact, there'll be a holiday when God's prophets are destroyed. Killed in Jerusalem, and people will exchange presents on that day. Antichrist will take the bold actions of changing the calendar and bringing it all under his authority. And what's God going to do? He's going to answer that with his own bold attack. And this attack will go right against this new calendar. The day will be darkened, the night will be all messed up, daylight will be messed up. It won't even be regular. This is also an attack against man's personal schedule. You know, we've got our schedules even as Christians. Things that are important to us. It amazes me the lack of spontaneity that is in American culture today. It's astounding. Even in ministries, there's no spontaneity. Most of the incredible things that took place when Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas went on their missionary journeys were not a result of his plans. It recalled spontaneous action when God opened a door. And if you're a missionary going on the mission field and you can't live with spontaneity, you won't be used with God. Because your schedule is God. Your plans are God. Your goals are God. And I'm already going to warn you, those that are coming to Bangladesh, we've got a plan. It's not going to work like that. It's not going to happen like that. Things will happen on the spur of the moment. And we're going to trust God with that. The lack of spontaneity in this culture, I think, is wicked. Because it reflects worship and adoration of our schedule and not of a sovereign God. The personal schedule, the personal goal, the career plan, the five-year plan, these are gods that we worship, not the God of the universe. And shame on pastors who are more concerned about their schedule than they are about spontaneity in ministry. And about meeting needs that God puts in our path that we don't even anticipate. Schedule, schedule, schedule. I go to school. I go to high school. I get my diploma. I go to college. I get an entry-level job. I climb the ladder. I do all of this. I do all of this. Praise God for our jobs and our careers. Praise God for those that God uses in the church. In their careers and their financial success to undergird the ministries of the church. My friends, a career is a 20th century invention. It is. And it's become our God. Our schedule has become our God. We need to repent. But God's going to attack the personal schedule of all men. And in doing so, by attacking the calendar, He's going to demonstrate some very blunt truths that the wicked cannot comprehend. Very blunt truths that some of us even forget. Bear with me, I'm almost done. Uh, Matthew, we look up Proverbs sixteen nine. Jason, Proverbs twenty twenty four. This is God's answer. Is this smiting of the day and the night? And what does it demonstrate? This fourth trumpet judgment. Proverbs sixteen nine. Man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Man's heart makes his schedule, but God directs his steps. God determines whether your schedule will be met or not. Proverbs twenty twenty four. Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Man's goings are of the Lord. So how can a man even understand and put together a reliable schedule? It's impossible. We don't know what's going to follow us. Jesus said, "Boast not on the morrow. You don't even know what a day will bring forth." And those that have made their personal schedules, God. It is so worshipped across this world in all cultures. This God will be overthrown with the fourth trumpet judgment. A third part of the sun was smitten. A third part of the moon. A third part of the stars. A third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it and the night likewise. I don't know exactly what this looks like. But it's directly tied to the calendar. And God's not done using the sun as a source of judgment. Later we're going to see that Fire from the sun scorches men with great heat. So the sun that many worship becomes the instrument of its Creator's judgment. And in being used to judge man, the sun itself worships God because the host of heaven worships Him. The Lord controls even the wicked, appointing them to destruction on His time and His terms. Praise God that, even sal- that salvation is of the Lord as well. And where we could not, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Praise the Lord. And then finally, verse 13, and I'll finish the chapter. We've got the first four trumpet judgments. They are an attack against man's modern day pantheon of gods. And then we have a warning in verse 13. A warning of woe. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. By reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Now, how could it be any worse than what we've just seen? Wow. What do we learn from this? Well, number one, this is an angel flying through heaven. It's not an eagle, okay? Some modern Bibles, like the ESV, which claims to be a Reformation Bible, and this is another example of where it's not, say eagle. And you might think, well, what's the difference? Well, it's important. Every word of God is pure. And the, the reading eagle not only agrees with the majority of manuscript witnesses back you know as every reading in the king james is backed by that traditional text line that's been shown to be uh, reliable throughout history but go to verse chapter 14 verse 6 you angel? You yeah it says angel but some bibles say eagle so you, said the, like you said the reading of angel you said the reading of eagle was no no it's it's the angel you're right uh, it's angel that's correct. Eagle is not. And here's why. Look at chapter 14, verse 6. John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. Okay, that word angel in chapter 14 is not disputed. And John says he sees another angel fly through the midst of heaven. Well, if chapter 8, 13 is an eagle, then what he says in chapter 14 makes no sense because he hadn't seen another angel. He saw an eagle. So, that's just kind of an interesting... Uh, it's it follows these catholic manuscripts that basically have all these other major changes that um, modern day textual critics basically think are they worship these manuscripts as God and they're basically catholic and it's, it's a big troubled uh, um, scenario and we can trust that God preserves his word and it amazes me how the translators and these textual critics it's like they throw the internal evidence of the text out the window and don't even consider what it does to the actual internal reading of the text when you cast it out. First John 5, 7, the, the great Trinity passage. Okay, let's forget about the manuscript evidence for a moment. Just internally, when you take those verses out and change them like some modern versions do, it doesn't make any sense. God, John is contrasting the witness of God with the witness of men. And when you take the witness of God out, the three that bear record in heaven, it makes no, his argument makes no sense. And... The gender of the words doesn't match in the Greek. So syntactically, it ruins the entire text. And it's like, does internal evidence not have any bearing whatsoever? It's just how messed up things become when people try to understand God's Word and its preservation in a man-made sense. Interesting. But some Bibles say eagle, and that makes no sense in view of 14.6. Because here's the angel John sees fly through heaven, and then chapter 14 he says, I see another angel. Fly through heaven, So that makes no sense, of course, um, if you change that to eagle. I don't know why they do that. It doesn't make sense. Um, but we can trust every word, and if every word is important, the angel is important as opposed to eagle. Anyway, little side note. What we have here in verse 13 is a revelation that the remaining trumpets, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, are called the three woes. And so they are on a level even beyond what we have already seen. And as we go on to study, and when I return um, from uh, from, from, uh, India and South Asia with my family, Lord willing, we will get into this. The fifth and sixth trumpets represent an unleashing of demonic wrath. God's going to let the demons have a heyday with the fifth and sixth trumpets. The demons and Satan are restrained, but God lets their leash out for the fifth and sixth. We're going to have an unleashing of divine wrath with the seventh vial. And so these are the three woes. And what does God do here? Does He just throw it down on man? No. He warns them ahead of time. He tells them exactly what's coming. You see, what differentiates God from the happenstance gods of man-made religion? What shows God to be a God of mercy is He never dispenses judgment without warning. And he never gives judgment without dispensing a means of escape. This is quite unlike the gods of men. When judgment comes, it comes randomly, it comes knee jerk, and there is no escape. God warns his people. And this entire Bible is a warning that's been uttered for centuries about these days we're reading. God loved us enough to warn us, we're not listening. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, listen to this rhetorical question that the, proverb, that the prophet asked. Amos 3, 7. Surely, oh, Verse 6, "...shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord will do nothing but..." That word but here has the sense of except. "...He revealeth His secrets unto His servants the prophets." God does not do nothing in the context of judgment without revealing it to His prophets and thereby issuing a warning. Here we have a warning, not only of these three woes, but of the entire time of tribulation, the birth pangs of the Messiah. Israel's been warned. The world's been warned. The Laodicean church has been warned. That's how much God loves us. And He's provided a means of escape. You see, there's escape from these days for the church. If we'll repent and be born again, we'll be raptured out. There's escape for the tribulation saint by placing his faith in Christ and losing his life for the Gospel. There's escape. And still, God calls people to repent even in these times of trouble. What an amazing testimony. Jeremiah 13.16 And I will end with this. And while you're turning there, On a side note, let me just say this about the trumpet judgments and things that we've already seen and about the ones that are to come. There's no reason to spiritualize any of this when we read it. It means what it says. When it says a mountain falls into the sea or a star from heaven, that's what it means. In a sense, the plagues of Egypt, as I've already said, there's no less than five of the ten we see repeated during the tribulation on a global scale. We look at those plagues... The the literalness of the Egyptian plagues are key, in my opinion, to the literalness of the book of Revelation. And there's no reason to interpret these things any other way. You know, the the, the mountain falling into the sea is not false doctrine spreading throughout the earth. Okay? The uh, army of 200 million demonic troops that comes with one of the later trumpets, the sixth trumpet, that's not the Chinese military. Okay? They are what they say. It's demonic army. There's no reason to think otherwise. Okay? Keep that in mind as we study this. And the, the, the plagues in Egypt are a key to understanding that. God didn't deal esoterically. There are those that teach that these weren't real. But they were. They were literal. The Nile turned to blood and it stank. Je- Jeremiah 13, 16, and I'll end with this. Give glory to the Lord your God before He calls darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while you look for light, you turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Here we have God's warning spread across the centuries about the days of great darkness that's coming. Will they listen? Will we listen? Children, the Bible says, for this very reason, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he grew very old. He turned from God. He allowed his wives to turn his heart from God when he was king. And God took the kingdom from him. And when he was an old man, he realized the mistakes he made and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he saw that all his riches, all his power, all his wealth were vanity. And this is what he warned people to do. Number one, don't make the mistakes I made. Okay? And then he said to the young people, Remember the Lord while you are young. Because if you don't do it now, when you go old and the days grow dark, your heart will be hard and you won't listen. Hear the warnings now and let's live accordingly. Let it, we've been saved from these things by faith in Christ and let it propel us to share the gospel and to warn others. Part of loving people is to warn them. And this idea that you don't warn the lost of God's judgment is a wicked deception from hell being perpetrated by quote-unquote Christian pastors across this country even in these hours that I'm speaking now. And that's straight from hell. Because Satan doesn't want the people of this planet to be warned. He doesn't want them to know what's coming. He wants to take everyone down with him. The warning's been issued. If we love people, let's warn them. And may we remember the Lord in the days of our youth before these days come. Amen. Thank you all for being patient with me. I know I went a little bit late, but we finished chapter 8. I'm sure you guys will enjoy studying, uh, I guess you're going to go, what, 1 Corinthians for a while? Chapter 16. Chapter 16. And when we get back, we'll start Revelation chapter 9, the fifth woe. Or the first woe, the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet. Then we're going to get into some interesting things about the temple that's going to be in Jerusalem during the days of tribulation. We're going to talk about God's two witnesses. They're street preachers. We're going to talk about Antichrist and some of the great characters of this period of time. And then we'll work toward that glorious day when the white horse comes down and the foot sets on the Mount of Olives and all prayers are answered. Thank you all for allowing me to teach. I hope it's a blessing to you. Last week's message and today will be up online before I leave the country.